Now, <clears throat> this passage starts off with some exciting, of course, you know, very exciting news. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, just stop right there. There is there th this Jesus movement is exploding. And we've got to remember the context here. You know, they had just crucified Jesus. And so the religious authorities and Roman government, I'm sure, thought well, that was the end of that. You know, I mean, if you talk to, to anyone who's involved in politics or in warfare, I mean, the, the idea and the philosophy that if you, if you cut off the head of the snake, the snake dies, right? So... You don't need to deal with all the underlings and all this other stuff. We, I mean, we still deal with that in warfare today. You take out the head, and the rest of it dies. And so they very successfully, in their mind, orchestrated a plot to take out the head, right? They kill Jesus, they crucify him. And then three days later, they start finding out, we, we, uh, we got a problem here, because he's alive, and his followers, who were few, but they're convinced that he's still alive. And they're telling everybody that he's still alive and he's victorious. And so the gospel begins to spread. And, and it begins to, uh, the, the, the rate, it began to become more rapidly speeding across like a wildfire. If you've ever seen something like a wildfire, it just, it just starts, to, starts to take off and people are being saved and so forth. This is, you know, of course, Pentecost had happened and 3,000 were saved and then by this point here, there could be upwards of 20,000 Christians, people born again who have walked away. I mean, to become a Christian in this day was, was no small thing. There was no, very little to no social benefit to doing this. These are devout people that are, that are being impacted by the gospel and are being saved in upwards of 20,000. So when it says here that in those days the disciples were increasing in number, it was rapidly happening and it was radical and it was overwhelming. Now watch what happens though. This is all good, right? People being saved, people being baptized, people joining the church. We've read in previous chapters here that there was buying and selling, you know, that was happening in order to, to fund the, 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 the new church and the mission of the new church. And in that context, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This is a significant issue. Now, let, let's, let's get into some context here. And some of these points that I'm going to make this morning uh, may have been touched on 10, 15, 20, or 30 years ago in passing. But because of the context in which we're living right now, the, the needed emphasis has increased on some of this. So you've got these widows. There's a complaint that comes up regarding this distribution of, of food and probably other resources against the Hellenists, the Hellenist widows, that they weren't being treated uh, in the same way as the Hebrew widows were being treated. Now, we have to remember, there was no um, social security, there was, there was no public welfare system. I mean, the Roman government was wealthy, but they left it up to y'all to deal with yourselves 
And if you can't deal with yourself, then, then they were more than happy to leave it up to everyone else to try to figure out a way to care for those who were not able to care for themselves. And that was the, definitely a predicament of women in that day. There, there was no wick. There, there was no public housing or, or anything like this. But there was also not masses of languishing people in the streets. There was not masses of people starving in Jerusalem or in anywhere where, where, uh, where the Jews were populated. Why is that, Gary? Because the people of God made sure that there was enough for them. Charity, and uh, both private charity as an individual and then also corporate charity as local synagogues and congregations was a, was, was a fundamental element of their experience. This was, this was how they took care of the poor and in particular, the widows. This is in the Word of God. If you... I got on the screen here, I believe, Isaiah chapter 10. You see how serious God takes the care of the widows. And he's speaking, by the way, to governments. And our government, need, every one of them who's involved in it, need, from local, state, and federal, needs to read this and believe this. Woe. That means warning. Warning, warning. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees. The writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their rights, that widows may be their spoil, they're taken advantage of, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. This is the, the, the undergirding worldview of the, of the ancient Jew. Woe to anyone who mistreats these people. Woe. And when you read in the Word of God, a prophet declare a woe, that means you stop right now and you take what is about to be said dead serious because God is about this close to evaporating you over this. Like when, when the prophet drops the woe, that means, whoa, whoa. Like that's where we get that, to, whoa. Like we, we, we've trivialized it, but that's where it comes from. Like stop. And so the Jews took care of the widows and the poor. Now, you know, maybe not, you know, they were, they were still poor, but it was, I, I won't get into it, but I mean, the, the economic system was certainly much different. It wasn't, uh, wealth wasn't expanding and wasn't able to grow in the same way as, as our, in, in our system. And so they were kind of stuck. And in particular, the widows. So you've got at Pentecost, the church born, and you've got people being saved. The gospel is being spread like wildfire. And these widows who were Hellenistic were there. Many of them may have been there at Pentecost and heard the gospel in their own language. And they're saved. Okay? I'm going to talk to you a minute here how they even got here. But they're saved. They're following Jesus. And because of that, in the minds of the synagogue officials and the religious leaders, you're on the other team now. You're not coming here for the distribution from the synagogue anymore. 
you're apostate or whatever they would say. You're done. And so it became incumbent upon the, the, the ancient church, the primitive church, to immediately supplement that, to immediately address that. And that was what was going on in chapters 4 and chapter 5 when they're selling land and bringing in people that had, had wealth. This was a real need. This, was, this is serious. Because there was no, again, no social system for these widows. And there wasn't part-time jobs that they could pick up at Walmart or wherever. There, I mean, this was it. Now, there is some discussion as to who these Hellenistic widows were. Most, most would agree that these were women who were widows, who were uh, probably born and raised in the dysphoria. They were, they, were, they were Jewish, they were ethnic Jews, but they were, they were not in Israel, or they were not in Jerusalem at least. They, and they were in pockets uh, where they spoke other languages and they lived like Greeks, basically. They were, every, they, were, they were Greek in every way, but, but their ethnicity, I guess, or their heritage. And oftentimes, and that was because of various exiles and persecutions that would cause the Jewish people. They were always being persecuted all throughout history, and they would be scattered, and, and many of them just would stay where they were um, and, and just kind of put roots down, and, and that's where they were. And oftentimes, though, It'd be, you know, the men, the husbands, uh, the head of the home would, would, would get zealous for the things of God and would say that I'm, I'm not dying out here, you know, out here in pagan land. I'm up, we're uprooting. Our kids are grown. So their sons are established and have wives. And, and so they're kind of almost like you would say empty nesters in a sense. And oftentimes they would say we're going to Jerusalem. And I'm going to die there. And I'm going to be buried with my forefathers. And so that happened. Now, I don't know how much forethought was going on to this because mama was, was left behind. Right? And remember, their sons are still back over here. And so these widows didn't have a husband and they didn't have sons right there to take care of them. And so this is, that's that segment that was falling between the cracks because... Most of the widows didn't have to worry about this kind of stuff because they had six sons right in the vicinity to make sure mother is taken care of. But these women here were foreign. They spoke a foreign language. For the most part, they may have been somewhat bilingual, but primarily they're speaking Greek. Their customs are different, and they don't have family. And they're stuck. And they're saved. They've heard the gospel. They're saved. They're now part of the new church, and they are now being taken care of. And a complaint arises amongst that group. They're saying we're not being treated the same as the Hebrew widows. The, the distribution is, is, is not, something's off here. We don't know exactly to what degree. And there could be all kinds of implications as to, to why that is. I think it's pretty obvious that there, there may have been some underlying, I don't know, prejudice. I mean, they're, they're all Jewish, but that is almost like a name. <laughs> I mean, these people speak different, think different, dress different, they look different, they're not like us. They don't follow our customs, at least not as strictly. This may actually have been an early, just the early sproutling of what later became 
the manifestation of the Judaizers where the, you have to be Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. Maybe there's some of that going on that, that you know, we'll, we'll take care of them to some degree, but because they're not following all of our ancient Jewish customs, we're not going to treat them, treat them the same. There's, there's very little reason to doubt that that was going on, right? But notice the spirit of this complaint. They're not coming out and, and calling everybody racist and bigots and whatever. They're not accusatory. There's an issue here. There's no doubt there's an issue here. And they're, by the way, I think it's noteworthy that they were comfortable enough to bring it up. This is not a cult where people are suppressed and everybody's got to be happy, happy, happy. There's, a, there's an issue here. And there may be underlying sin on some level with somebody. And the apostles apparently are not aware of this because there's 20,000 people in this church and 12 of them, right? So they're they just not aware of it. But there's not this, these, these hyper-inflamed, uh, almost I want to say judgmental charges that this is happening because you all are hating us. You hate us. You, treat, you don't think we're the same as you. That's not what they're, they're bringing up the issue. There's, 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 there's a problem in the church now, but they're coming at this with the presumption of, there's just grace in this. Like, hey, this is a problem. I think we can learn something about the way this issue was addressed. Well, not just addressed, but... Was, was brought to the attention of the apostles and then addressed. Man, do we need to tamp down the rhetoric in, in our day, even in our churches. It's like, slow down, cowboy. Like, the apostles, there is nothing here to indicate that they were aware of this problem. Sometimes that kind of stuff happens in the church. I know that may break your heart to find out that sometimes pastors and church leaders have blind spots and things that are going on that they, they're not aware of or ways of doing things that may be 10 times more efficient. We don't, you know, we, we're not Jesus. And they weren't Jesus and they weren't aware of this problem. And so the accusation is not against the apostles. You don't care about us. You're treating us different. You're a bunch of bigots. You don't care about women. You treat us like second class. We're out here starving out here. You don't even care. You imagine that kind of accusation would be like, whoa, time out. I didn't even know this was happening. So they find out. It says this. This complaint comes up. They're being neglected. They're not being treated the same in the daily distribution. And what did the 12 do? D did, they, did they push back and say, uh, who, who, who are you to challenge us? These aren't just elders. They are elders, but they're also apostles. Hello? What are you... Have you ever been around people in authority that you bring up a legitimate issue, and it's like they're offended that you even said anything. 
it's not what they're doing. I mean, I was texting with Mark Sherry about this passage um, yesterday. And I'm like, you imagine, P I mean, if, put yourself, imagine you're Peter, okay? He walked with Jesus for like three years. Ate with him, he drank with him, he, you know, camped with him. Day after day after day, he saw all of these miracles. He got to participate in some of them. Peter walked on water one day. Not for long, but he did. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw Christ crucified. He saw him resurrected three days later. Peter saw Jesus Christ ascend into heaven. Jesus lifted off the ground and went up into heaven. And they stood there and watched it. That, okay, so that's who we're talking about here, Peter and the apostles, right? You can see where they go, hey, pal, you know, tell me what, you know, what, what are you going to tell me? That's not, that is not their attitude, is it? God forbid we act like that at New Hill. This is what they did. That the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that should we give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we, will, uh, we ourselves will be devoted to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What they said pleased the whole gathering. They addressed this issue. They said, no, 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 this is, I didn't know this. This is a problem. And we're going to deal with this. Now, I do want to point out the preeminence of preaching and prayer in the ministry of the, the life of local elders. See, we're dealing with what, what, what you could call, somebody's going to throw a hymnal at me, but a social justice issue here, right? <laughs> oh, boy, careful, Gary. Whoa. Whoa, slow down. But you see what I'm saying? We're dealing with a social issue here. And oftentimes churches will see that that is the preeminent issue and they give up on, on all the, the preaching and stuff. We've got to keep all that stuff real light and just whatever so we can focus on what's important. No, that's not what the apostles are saying. No, no, no. Preaching and teaching and evangelizing and declaring the word of God and leading this church in prayer, that is still number one. That's not going to change. That needs to be our primary focus. But that doesn't mean this stuff isn't important. It is important. It's vitally important. We cannot let this continue to go on. We will not let this continue to go on. And so they appoint what we believe to be the first, first set of deacons. This is good stuff, isn't it? Oh, I just love it. They're addressing it, and they select this group of seven deacons. Notice that they're all, these are all Greek names. It seems to make sense that people that speak the language and are kind of a, you know, aware of the culture and so forth to deal with this complaint would be put as, uh, as lead in dealing with to make sure this distribution is going correctly. Now you say, you say, well, Pastor Gary, you see here, if, this is, if these are the first deacons, the word deacon is not used to describe them, and I, I would say that the reason for that is because that the term was not official, like codified at that point. In other words, later on, they started calling this ministry the deacon ministry. 
That's, I, I don't think it's a, I don't have a problem. I don't understand why that's even controversial. These guys aren't deacons. I, I don't know what deacons are. Um, but you say, you say, Pastor Gary, um, I see that these are all Greek names, so you're right about that, but they're also all men, right? Yeah, every single one of these names are male. And you say, well, but, but Pastor Gary, does, does that mean that deacons are only supposed to be men? And, and, and so I just want to tell you, that's a great question. Okay, so I'm glad that you're thinking with me this morning. These are all men that are being described here. And so then, of course, throughout the last 2,000 years, biblical Christians have looked at this and said, is this indicating that the deacons should only be men? I do want to touch on this because it's just, it's just an important point because here at New Hill, we have men and women in the diaconate, in, in our deacon ministry. And I want you to know and rest assured that even though you all noticed these were all men, I, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking, what, what's going on here? I want you to flip. I, I'm skipping a slide here, by the way, um, Jared. Flip to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. I, I just briefly want to touch on this because I, I think it would be a mistake for me to, to just preach right past this. 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And we're going we're gonna to explain this. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine. I don't know if that means some wine is okay. No, it's not. Just the way you worded it. Not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus want to draw your attention to verse number 11 and get ready for fireworks, okay? Theological fireworks. Their wives. I am not a Greek scholar, but I read a whole bunch of guys who are. And you need to understand that that phrase, their wives, can be translated one of two ways and very frequently. So it's not an obscure thing where 99% of the time it says their wives. Like 50-50 type of thing. You could just as easily translate this into English as the women. So this is either, this leaves us with two options as biblical Christians trying to get the Greek into English and understand how does this relate to deacons. This is either, because of the way that phrase is, talking about the wives of deacons need to be dignified and so forth, and we agree with that either way, but, or it's talking about the women deacons. The, we, the, the women, likewise, must be dignified and so forth. You say, well, how do you fall on this? A couple of things, and, and we're running out of time here, but there are other passages that deal with the, the qualifications of elders, for example. And it's almost verbatim with deacons. Very similar qualifications, and it lists that out. The, the wives of elders are not addressed. In, that, in those passages. So it, first of all, it would seem odd that the deacons' wives have God-given responsibilities defined for them that they're to be held accountable to, 
But elders, wives can be whatever. <laughs> you know, there's there's no, no, no expectations, no extra or special expectations for elders, wives. So that seems odd that this would do it that way. And then there are women in the New Testament referred to as deacons. And so if you've got more questions about that, we can talk about that after church. But I think it would be foolish of me just to skip right past that. So here we go. They're dealing with this problem. They set these guys before the apostles. And it's, they lay hands on them. There's a, there's, a, there's a sort of official ordination, maybe, you would almost say. An official recognition that these seven are going to lead in this way. They're going to, they're, this is being delegated to them so the apostles can focus on, on studying the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, and leading in the prayers, both their personal prayers kind of as pastors of the church, and then there's probably even referring to prayer meetings that they needed to, you know, people would come and they would orchestrate prayer meetings. This issue is being dealt with. This is a biblical way in which problems like this are dealt with. A problem is addressed or is mentioned, is brought to the attention of the leadership. And it's done in a way that is not hyper. It is not over-exaggerated. It's not full of drama. It's like, hey, this is what a problem is. You dirty dog. You don't care about nobody. You bigot. It's none of that, right? So we need to be careful to follow the model here. When you see an issue in the church, really anywhere in life, but in this context here in the church, you know, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy that immediately is judging uh, motives, immediately judging what people are thinking, what they really mean by that. Don't be that guy. That's terrible. It's immature. It's not biblical. It's not Christ-like. There's no indication of that. But at the same time, they mentioned the issue. We, God forbid that, 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 that a church be like some authoritarian wacko place where people are not comfortable addressing things. They were to the apostles. And the way the apostles dealt with them was they heard the issue. They didn't get defensive. They didn't push back and tell them, well, this is your problem, or we did blah, 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 whatever the, you know, the pushback is. No, they're, they're correctable, teachable. Like, hey, this is an issue. And then they address the issue. And the way they address the issue is by presenting ministry opportunity for people. I can't just do this all. I'm not Superman. We shouldn't expect Pastor Michael to be Superman or any one of us on the team to be Superman. It's like, this is an issue. We get it. So who's going to deal with this? Is that, is that you? You're bringing this to our attention? So is that you? Are you going to deal with this? It's ministry opportunities to serve. Can't all just be the superstar. It all can't be the guy with his name on the website. It wasn't then. It can't be now. And then finally, let's end with this. Verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The church is functioning. The church is functioning properly. The word of God is still preeminent in this church. The word of God is still being proclaimed in this church. In the face of persecution, in spite of the threat of arrest and everything else that was being breathed against them, 
This church is declaring the word of God. They're preaching the word of God. People are hearing the word of God. And people are being saved. And as they're being saved, they're being cared for. And they're being loved on. And it didn't matter what language they spoke. It didn't matter. Male or female. Didn't matter. Age. Didn't matter. None of it. Didn't matter. They're being cared for. Practical, real needs being addressed by real people. Not by the government. By the people of God. Man, do you know what kind of power there is when churches are operating like that? Do you know what kind of testimony that is to a dying world who is so selfish and false? This is power. This is the gospel at work. And the disciples continued to multiply. And then, and then Luke here mentions, and priests. Priests are getting saved. There's a lot of priests in Jerusalem at that time. They were like, Oh, I'm getting these numbers mixed up. It was like 8,000, I don't know if they were, 8,000 Nazarites and 10,000 regular priests. I mean, there was like almost 20,000 of them running around who saw Jesus, by the way. Remember the context here. This is, you know, they saw this stuff. Maybe they saw uh, uh, miracles and so forth, and they just couldn't hang on any longer to this, to rejecting him. And they're being saved. And what a testimony that is. A growing gospel-centered church is going to have problems. But it's also going to have ministry opportunities as a result of those problems. And throughout all of that, great and many blessings. My prayer, and I pr believe and trust and in faith that it's your prayer as well, that New Hill, as we continue to grow, that it be because of this and not some slick program or because of the, oh, this, this, they're like a cool website. Oh, no, no. May it be because of the proclamation of God's word, the gospel, and people being saved and people being cared for and needs being addressed and problems being dealt with in a biblical and in a, in a gracious way. That's my prayer, and I pray, I hope it is yours as well. Let's pray. We'll ask the, the band to come back up. Lord Jesus, we want to be a church like this. So pure, so simple. As I read this here, Lord, I don't read about smoke machines and fog lights and strobe lights and websites and MySpace and Facebook. None of that. So pure. And it, we want to be like that. It's so simple. Preaching the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, encouraging one another in the Word of God and caring for one another as we go through life. Because we're not in heaven yet. Those widows weren't in heaven yet. So they needed cared for. And we've got needs in our church. And I'm so thankful to see how needs get rushed at here. People aren't running away like cowards. We rush to the needs. May we be like that. Make us more like that, I pray. I pray that it's as issues and challenges come up and we become aware of them i pray that and i'm in faith and believing that you will raise up servants people to address those needs and use their gifts for your glory and for the good of the church thank you for these people bless them i pray in jesus name